Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We're grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. We have a, we have a, a few fathers um, in our ministry, and so uh, happy Father's Day to you. I hope you are honored by your families, and we all have fathers. I hope today is a day that we can honor our fathers um, and, and honor the way that they have reflected our Heavenly Father in our lives. Um, it's the end of June. We have, I, I just want to be like transparent and say we have some exciting announcements coming up about the future of church continuing like this or not. Um, so that's coming up very soon. Yeah, so uh, we, we have um, some exciting announcements for that, and that'll be at the end of service. Uh, but for now, our sermon series, they still continue. We have finished the sermon series on Esther. Uh, so we will be starting the last of the three sermon series for the summer, and that's the book of Daniel. So if you guys can open up with me to the book of Daniel. I feel like one out of four Asian boys are always named Daniel. Uh, sorry, I don't know why I said that. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, the book of Daniel, um, this is Daniel chapter one. The book of Daniel chapter one. We're going to be reading through. The book of Daniel is really jam-packed with witness, with wisdom, um, so a lot of people actually think that this is a uh, version of like narrative literature, but it's actually like a marriage of narrative and wisdom literature. So just keep that in mind that it's like if you can marry like a book of the book of Esther and like Proverbs, that's kind of what Daniel is. And so uh, that's what we're looking at right now. The book of Daniel, chapter one. The book of Daniel is after Lamentation, no, after Ezekiel, before Hosea. I believe. I could be wrong. No, I think that's it. Anyway, uh, I'm reading from the ESV. I highly advise you guys to read from whatever is most comfortable. The message is really different, so you might get a little lost. But NSV, NSV, NIV, NRSV, all of those things are fine. We're not gathered together. We're not rising together in worship. Uh, in front of the word of God, but right now is the time to stop being distracted. If you guys are looking at something else, thinking about something else, right now is the time to empty your minds and come before the holy and perfect word of God. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some people, some of the people of Israel, both from the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, 
They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the very first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, I stand before you in confidence of who you are. Abba, we stand before you in humility, in gratitude, in honor. This is your worship. This is your glory. And so God, we just pray right now that you would give us hearts that are willing to, to hear and see and understand and take in eyes that are willing to observe you, mouths that are willing to worship you and give you glory. Abba, we are not perfect. And this age is messy. If there is one thing to be known about Christian faith, it is that it is messy. And yet, Lord, you are sovereign. You are totally, completely sovereign. And so, God, I just pray that right now you would approach your people in a real and powerful way. God, that they would see that you are Lord, that they would understand that you indeed are God. We love you, Lord. We give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we are starting our sermon series on the book of Daniel. Now, if you guys know anything about the beginning of sermon series, I have to give a bit of context. The context I give for Daniel will be a little different just because it is very different language than what we learned. So what is the context of the book of Daniel? 
A lot of you guys might have heard of stories within the book of Daniel. This might be your first time reading the book of Daniel. So the context of the book of Daniel is that in the first verse, we see Jehoiakim, king of Judah, has fallen to Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Jerusalem is the context of Daniel. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it's only two verses, but the details in which the author the, the author points out in this book is one thing. It's that the king has fallen and that vessels of the house of the Lord have been stolen. So obviously Nebuchadnezzar plunders Israel when Jerusalem falls. The holy city, the capital of Israel falls. Obviously there are a gazillion things to plunder, right? But the thing that is pointed out is that vessels of the house of the Lord are plundered. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar plundered the house of the Lord, stole some artifacts, some key things, holy items of the house of the Lord, and brought it to his God, Shinar's treasury. In the Old Testament context, this connotes a certain God's victory over another God. So here we see the, vis the visage or the, uh, what appears to be, sorry, I don't know why, the, what appears to be the Babylonian God of the Chaldeans, right? Victorious over Yahweh. That's what it seems on the outside. Now we understand that the context of Judah falling is <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of years of prophets saying, please stop sinning, you will fall. And Israel choosing to be idolatrous and not care about God. And so we know that the context of Judah falling, which is after the Northern Kingdom has fallen already. So when Judah falls, when the Southern Kingdom falls, that's it, Israel is gone. Israel as a nation state is done. There is no more Israel. When Jehoiakim falls to Babylon, that's it. Because the Northern Kingdom has already fallen to Assyria for about 50 years at this point. And so at this point, at this very point in the beginning of the book of Daniel, Israel is no more. Morale is at an all time low. The houses of Lord is plundered. What isn't told is that the ark of the Lord is taken. That's what's interesting. It's that the ark of the Lord being taken, it's not actually said here explicitly. Um, but we know that it is catastrophic loss that for all Israel knows, they have been completely defeated. And so that's the context of Daniel. The context of Daniel is loss unlike we have ever seen in our lifetimes. A nation not making it and falling at the hands of an empire and God's power being triumphed over. That's what it seems like. Hope is at an all-time low. Faith is at an all-time low. Religion is at an all-time low. The people are being brought into exile. Now, what's also interesting is that instead of burning, you know, the book of Yahweh, and burning the artifacts of this God, they take that God's, they take our God's stuff into the treasury of the house of Shinar instead of like demolishing it, which means now 
Holy artifacts of Yahweh are defiled in a house of an idol. And so this book exists in the context of total, total nation state failure. Complete exile, complete, like it's, it's only two verses, but this is probably one of the most painful moments of all of Israel's history. One of the most painful moments in all of Israel's history, right? And so there's that context. And then there's also this context where the book of Yahweh is in a house with other gods. And that shows the conflict between worshiping the true God and false worship of a false God. Um, and it's existing, coexisting in one space. The artifacts, the holiness, the worship of God coexisting with the worship of an idol in an idol's house. We will see that is one of the most important themes of the book of Daniel. If you know anybody who is named Daniel, know that the book of Daniel, one of the primary themes is maintaining a Christian witness in an unchristian, idolatrous world. So if that guy is having a hard time in his faith, point, just kidding, I'm just kidding. I don't know why I made that joke. It's okay, if you are, it's okay. If your name is Daniel, it's all right. Training for service. We are completely moving on. Totally inappropriate of me to say. Um, but yes, so that is, that is a key context of Daniel. Within these couple of verses, we move into the story of Daniel. I'm going to butcher Hananiah. I believe it's Azaria. And why don't I just look at it? Uh, Hananiah, Daniel, Mishael and Azariah, right? So Daniel and his three friends is a squad, a squad of four. I myself have a squad of four. Um, so this squad of four fall, falls under all the criterion that the king wants to have brought to Babylon to Babylonianize them, okay? There's no other way to put it there's a specific function, and that's why there are specific rules. First, they have to be competent. They have to be intel intelligent. They have to be easy on the eyes. They have to be athletic. They have to be of royalty, and they have to be of nobility. That means that they have to be of the tribe of Judah. They have to be in the lineage of King David, and they have to qualify for all of these things. They get brought in to Babylonian royalty, not royal... They are not made into royalty. They become staff next to the king. They are taught for three years. Young men, the, the word for young men is yelled. Um, and it connotes ch children to un like unmarried young men, right? And so all of these men are unmarried. They have no blemish, okay? And uh, they are brought for three years to learn under the chief eunuch to be brought before the king and to be at the king's side. One of the primary reasons for that is to stop Israel from rebelling. It's to like kill any leaders that could possibly lead an insurrection or rebellion and bring them under the Babylonian court. It's to make them assimilate into Babylon Babylonian culture while they're young and formative. And it's a specific military strategy to make sure that Israel stays weak and Babylonia, Babylon stays strong, right? 
One thing that isn't mentioned, there is a chance that these boys were castrated. Um, the, for those of you guys who are young, that means that, God, I can't do that. Um, it just means that they are no longer able to have children. It's a very gruesome process. Um, a very painful process of the ancient times where boys were made to not be able to have children anymore. And so they go through this process of uh, cash. It's, it's not, theologians can't like 100% get behind it, but the implication of needing to be without blemish, needing to be this and needing to be that, and bringing them under the chief eunuch, there is a strong, strong underlying like, inference that can be made that these people might have been made eunuchs themselves, which is why they're under the chief. And that's important because then that would stop them from developing fully as men, right? If you castrate somebody, they can't develop fully in, as men. They can't be fully strong either, right? It's a really good way to keep Israel Babylon's dog. Um, and so that's the training that Daniel and his three friends qualify for. Um, and they are given three years of education. So uh, the four things that, these, that this education does is it gives insight and teaches, it helps to be smarter, helps to be skilled, and helps to discern. So it's not quite like, oh, training outside one day, military another day, like, you know, arts and music one day. Like, it's not quite like school. This specific training is to build practical instruction for these men to become wise, like Proverbs wisdom. So it helps to give insight, to teach, to become smart, to under become understanding and perceptive, to become skilled and knowledgeable and to be able to observe and discern well. So it's very specific skills that are being taught to these young men who are young exiles to be brought into the king's court. In the midst of this learning, they are immersed in the culture of their enemy to the point where they are given new names. Daniel means God is my judge. That's a scary name for it to be a common name. Oh my God. Does any Daniel, does any person that names a child Daniel know that that's the name? God is my judge. Anyway, uh, God, God, God is my judge. Whoa. Becomes Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, which is, Either may a God protect his life or lady goddess protect the king. Azariah, Yahweh is my help, becomes Abednego, which is a lower version of a servant of Nabu. Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. And Mishael, who is what God is, becomes Shadrach and Meshach, which are, they're named after they're, they're given names that associate them with Babylonian gods instead. So we, we, and in the midst of that, the king brings them into their court. They're given nice food. <laughs> they're given nice food. 
and a nice place to stay in exchange for everything that they are, okay? So we see here this complex, confusing position that Daniel and his three, his three friends are in. These are young boys. Maybe some of our older youth kids to some of our younger college students, young boys, young boys, not like older boys, younger boys that are subject to not only their nation and thousands of years of history, because at this point, Abraham is 2200 BCE. When, when Judah falls to Babylon, that's 589 BCE. So that's like, if you can imagine like 1,500 years, at least of history, just completely being cut, this nation is no more. Okay. So they witness that they get taken because they're like better. They're of better quality in, in stature and in wisdom and in knowledge and in strength. And then they be, they possibly have their genders taken from them. Right. Their places taken from them, they're displaced from their families. They're brought into new Babylonian territory. They're immersed in Chaldean language, Chaldean wisdom and Chaldean culture. And on top of that, they are renamed. In another way to put it, all, wait, all in exchange for good treatment. Put another way, this is one of the worst ethnic cleansing that a person could ever experience in their lifetime. It brings, it brings into mind what happens when in the Japanese occupation of Korea. Um, my grandmother is still very traumatized by that to this day. She still remembers the day she was given a new name. What was so hard about the Japanese occupation of South Korea, uh, and which was only a hundred years ago. Um, what was so rough about that time was not just that you know, the whole nation was taken over and then Korea fell and on all of these things. Yes, negative treatment, all of that thing aside, what was so bad is that they started teaching in elementary schools and in middle schools, they did away with Korean, like, you know how we learn English in school because it's, you know, the primary language of the country. And so we learn English. In Korea, there's something called Google. And that's like the Korean version, Korean schools. That was replaced with Japanese. And so if you were young enough, for that generation, for our grandparent generation, the first language that they could have learned is Japanese. Um, in elementary school, in middle school, names were rewritten, regiven. Um, like ancestry was blocked. Another country that goes through something similar is the Philippines. They have a lot of Spanish last names because last names were given. Um, and so we see like colonialism has modern day references to this. I'm only naming parts of the global south in the continent of Asia, but there's obviously instances of this in Oceania and Africa. Um, I don't know if there are instances of this in Europe, but there are instances of this in North America. Um, and so we see, we see this in South America. Uh, I would say though that some of the more egregious versions of this are in Africa and Asia. Um, actually, let me not say that. Let me not say that. People are bad all around. It's really bad in South. Anyway, anyway, so colonialism, modern day colonialism is not too far off from Babylon is what I'm trying to say. 
Babylonians might seem like the worst people possible, but honestly, Western colonialism has done a pretty similar job. And we are currently living in the aftermath of that. A lot of us are diaspora um, people of color. And a lot of the reason why we are diaspora people of color is for a very similar reason for why they are diaspora people of color. So I'm putting this into perspective for you and I'm trying to say that what Daniel is going through right now is not so far removed from what you or your loved ones or your family might have experienced, right? And so this is something to keep in mind because we look at the book of Daniel, we're like, oh, this is a story. This is somebody else's story. But Daniel has practical implications in our society today, right? Because of this very reason. And so we see that Daniel goes through the greatest amount of ethnic cleansing that is possible at this time period, right? All in exchange for what? Being able to live in the palace and being given the king's food, right? And so it sounds like great treatment, but it's still in the context of exile. It's still in the context of breaking Israel's spirit. And it's still in the context of completely ripping away somebody's identity. What you will notice, and I just want to point this out, because the book of Daniel still uses their Hebrew names versus the book of Esther. Esther is the Persian name. Esther is a derivative of Ishtar. Remember, Esther, Queen Esther's actual name her real name is Hadassah. But the, the book of Esther does not call her Queen Hadassah. They call her Queen Esther. Here, they call Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They call these four boys by their Hebrew names instead of calling them by Belteshazzar or Abednego, right? They call them by their Hebrew names. That is significant because... Somebody was saying, we were, we were talking about, this is so like trivial, but we were talking about um, moving, right? So I was talking to somebody about moving the other day and somebody was saying like, oh, would you ever be able to live or raise your children outside of New York? And my honest question for that is I have no idea. I don't know if I want to though, because you can take, the, you can take me out of New York, but you can't take New York out of me, right? Um, and I greatly value uh, what I've experienced growing up and what I've been able to see and be exposed to growing up. Um, in that same way, you, you see in the book of Daniel something that you don't see very often, um, especially in this time of exile, because these people, their ethnic morale and hope is at an all-time low. It's imagine Korea fell. Imagine Korea fell. Imagine Korea never recovered from the Korean War. Like, would you be able to walk around with your Korean name? I mean, yes, hopefully, but our ethnic morale would be at such a low for those of us in just at least, not, ever, not all of us in our congregation are Korean, but just in the context of the Japanese occupation. Imagine Korea fell that time. We might be speaking Japanese right now. That's the, re that's the reality of what happened not even 100 years ago. Okay, and so like when you consider that, the fact that Daniel is continuing to reference to himself is, or the author is continuing to reference Daniel by his Hebrew name, that says something about Daniel. And it shows that he's not taking the approach of assimilating to the context of his world. But he is 
It's a clear statement. You can take Daniel out of Jerusalem. You can take Daniel out of the house of Judah. You can take Daniel out of the house of the Lord, but you can't take the house of the Lord out of Daniel. It doesn't matter what other people call him. It doesn't matter if he's given a new Babylonian name. His identity is secure. And there's something to be, I'm not, I'm not gonna go into it any more than this right now, but I want us to be challenged by that. Not ethnically, not, not ethnically. This is, we're not comparing the house of the Lord to our ethnicity, no. Um, but we often, we often, I just wanna say, we often allow ourselves to assimilate into this world to the point where our identity might be found in what we do outside of God more than what we do within God. To the point where our friends may not know our Christian identity. Ask yourself this, what is the basis of my identity? A lot of us do a, like a reckoning in our Koreanness, and I think that's wonderful. I highly encourage every single person in their immigrant, like, I mean, we have, we have all different, um, races in North Boston, and I think that's a wonderful thing. We are a multi-ethnic church, proudly. Um, but for all of us, we have had to do a reckoning of our birth and our heritage, especially in light of having to assimilate into America, right? And while that's great, that's wonderful, but I hope you are doing greater work in the foundational identity of your life, which is, which is your faith. You will only, like, I will only be Korean for 80 to 90 years. I mean, I think it's wonderful that God, I mean, God created diversity. God created culture. That's why we can't, you can't say, I don't see color because that's ridiculous because God created that. It's a good thing. Every nation and every tribe singing to the Lord. That's in Revelation, right? At the same time, we often might live and compromise our faith for the world that we live around us, partially because of what we want to do, partially because that's easier. And a lot of us are younger. We've got younger men, younger women in this ministry. It's very important. You are in a very formative time of your life. Will you be, will you name yourself like Esther or will you name yourself Daniel? Will you name yourself by your name in the Lord or will you name yourself by this world? What will you allow your significance to be in? Right? Your career, your family, those are wonderful things, right? But what is your fundamental basis for life? That's going to be very important in this book. And so that's the context that Daniel is in for these three years. Now, we see a conflict arise in the book of Daniel. In chapter one, we see that Daniel's, Daniel and his friends, they give in to everything. They give in to the culture thing. They give in to the Babylon thing. They give in to the Babylonian kin thing. They give in to the three years thing. They give in to the different names thing, right? All of a sudden, one thing, Daniel's like, all right, after everything that I've been through, this is my line. And the line is food. Now, a lot of people question, why is that the line, right? You getting renamed, that's not your line. 
Granted, it was a common practice in the Babylonian court to rename somebody, but that's not my line. No, food is my line. Why is food the line? Some people might be thinking, oh, because he's not eating kosher. Uh, that's partially true. I think some part of it might be because of the religious overtures of uh, the king's table. Like the king's food is often used in uh, worship for other gods. It's often given with no attention and care to our Hananim, right? And so, yeah, maybe it has to do with idolatry, right? But Daniel says, no, don't give me meat, just vegetables. There's no saying that those vegetables weren't given on those altars either, you know? So that's the only thing. It's like, there's no saying that those vegetables were not given for idol worship and the meat was. I'm pretty sure both of them were. But Daniel chooses to say, I'm going to eat only vegetables. I don't want to contaminate myself. Daniel and his friends, he say, they say that. The chief of staff shows compassion over him, most likely because there's a lot to be compassionate about, okay? But he says no, partially because if Daniel and his friends become weak because the chief of staff listened to them, the chief, it's over for the chief of staff, right? Because um, the king is... I guess, so to speak, he's fattening them up. The king, what the king is trying to do here is he's trying to change these men and cleanse these men from their ethnicity, cleanse these men from their religion, cleanse these men from what they were before and make them into officers of his court instead. Potential leaders of Israel. All the best of the best, cream of the crop, most charismatic, most effective leaders, the young boys that could have led the nation, he goes, and he tries to make them his and he fattens them up like animals. And Daniel says, no, I don't want to do that. And so the chief of staff says, well, I can't let you do that. And so Daniel, he doesn't freak out. Like, granted, Daniel has no power. Daniel and his three friends have no power. Have you ever been in a position where you have no opportunity to choose? A lot of us here in our congregation, we have very strong opinions, right? We barely allow anybody to speak into our lives. Daniel has strong opinions, but in the position that he's in, he's not given an option to refuse, right? It's yes or death when it comes to Babylon. They're in exile, right? And yet, and yet, Daniel doesn't panic. He doesn't get angry. He, he pivots and he says, hey, then let's try this. See us for 10 days. If we are not as healthy, if we are not as wise, if we are not doing as well as everybody else, then I will eat meat. The chief of staff goes, okay, it's 10 days, agree, right? And he agrees and he does it. And they eat them vegetables and they get healthy, they get stronger, they're wiser. And the Lord, it says in scripture, it says in scripture here, it's, it's so interesting. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in, in appearance, fatter in flesh, right? Than all the youths who ate the king's food. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all vis visions and dreams. And so we see here, nothing is going for them. Let me be clear. This is the worst situation that they could be in. They are completely taken from who they were and they're being completely made to be something that they're not. Has anybody ever tried to make you into something that you are not? That is what Daniel is going through right now. 
That is what these four young boys are going through right now. And we all know, I've been a youth pastor for, I'm pushing on four years, okay? I know, we all know, we all know how angsty that time period is in people's lives, okay? This the most rebellious stage. It's the most I do what I want to kind of stage. It's the most like I'll be here, there, and everywhere. You're not sure who you are. You're not sure what you're made up of. It's where your identity is being built up, and there's a lot of confusion leading up to that point. It's a confusing place to be in, sometimes a really angry place to be in, sometimes a really dark place to be in. And we've all been there, and I've, I've, you know, I'm a youth pastor, so you know, it's what I do, but Daniel goes through this phase completely shut. His whole identity, everything that he is, completely cleansed on the outside. And yet, they hold on to this one thing. They eat only vegetables. Have you, we might have some vegetarians in our congregation. I am openly, if you are a vegetarian, more power to you. I heard meat is not that great for you. I can never give up meat for my life. For my life. The day the doctor tells me, I have problems with cholesterol, I'm going to cry. I'm just going to cry. It's going to be the worst grief I've ever experienced in my life. I'm never going to, no, 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 no. We're not gonna think about it. We're not gonna think about it, I'm not gonna think about it. But these young boys gave up meat, like juicy meat, the king's food, just there. And it, there's also this connotation that these four boys chose a different lifestyle amongst hundreds of other Jewish boys. So there were hundreds of other Jewish boys who gave into the food, gave into the name thing, gave into the culture, took the good treatment because they were having such a hard time anyways, and got built up in Chaldean wisdom and understanding. And yet Daniel and these three men chose to hold on to God and abstain themselves from a beautiful thing. Kogi is a beautiful, meat is a beautiful. They abstain themselves from glory for the Lord, right? That's already hard. And yet, they, they were in better shape than the people who were eating meat. Now you might say, oh yeah, that's normal vegetarianism. It's actually not true. Sometimes like, you might, like it's not quite the same. You can't just eat vegetables. You, like they don't know what protein is. They don't know what calcium is. They don't know what a balanced diet is. This is vegetables. This could possibly be just greens forever. Forever and ever, just greens. Just screens forever. Three years, three years, okay? And yet he was in better shape. The four of them were in better shape. They were much better developed than all the rest. That is witness. That is breaking science. That is breaking pagan understanding. That is breaking culture. That is God. We see, you know, throughout the book of Daniel, you'll see this is the most chill thing that God does for them. But this is God. And we see in, not just in the presence of a Chaldean world, in the presence of hundreds, maybe thousands of other Jewish boys who have completely compromised their faith. These four boys, they do not compromise. And you see a witness in them that trumps every other witness. There's no theology that, you know, the secular food was bad. There's no theology in here that the world is terrible. Although, you know, 
you might find that in other parts of scripture. Like there's no theology in here that says like pagan learning, secular learning is terrible. There's nothing that says that. It just says, it just says the implication of all of this is just that it could be triumphed over. You might wonder, this sounds a little bit weird. Kind of reminds us of like the COVID-19 arguments that a lot of conservatives make, right? If God is with us, right? Where COVID is seen to be a demonic influence. While I am not going to make any assumptions about the dem demonic influence of COVID or anything like that, just because I haven't prayed into it, I don't know. Frankly, I do not think it is important um, not that, not that demonic influence isn't important. I just don't think that that should be the impetus of COVID-19. Um, it is a natural disaster, right? And a plague, but it, anyway, so it, it might, it might, this might sound like reminiscent of the really, really conservative people who are like, no vaccines, God will save us. Right. I just want to say like, so do we throw away science? The, the beaming answer is no. No, no, please get vaccinated. Please, if you are not vaccinated, wear your PPE, wear your mask. Daniel is not throwing away the natural order of the world. It is just that God can triumph over anything in the material world. Be wise, be wise. Oh, that's... See, that's what's really important about this, this book of Daniel. We can talk about the courageousness of Daniel and how the three of them gave up vegetables. We can talk about all of these things, but I wanna point out a couple things about the wisdom of Daniel here, right? Number one, Daniel didn't panic. When the chief of staff blocked his ability to be faithful, Daniel didn't panic and he didn't get angry. He's a young boy. There's no reason why he wouldn't get angry. But he doesn't panic and he doesn't get angry. He pivots and he says, hey, what about this? At the point that Daniel says, watch us in 10 days, see how we are. Daniel has not seen. Daniel does not fully know that God is going to pull through for them and make them stronger than everybody else. Daniel exhibits faith there. Faith and calm. When we see Christians get really, really angry, when we see Christians in the middle of arguing, get really, I mean, me too. Sometimes you push my buttons and I'll like, you know, see red. But Daniel here, he doesn't panic. He doesn't get angry. It, it, it points to how sometimes anger and anxiety, these things are not just things to wrestle with and struggle through, but they are also sometimes temptations to, temptations to our faith, right? Uh, Philippians 4 says, do not anxious, do not be anxious, but in everything, like let the peace of the Lord who surpasses all understanding be in your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, where anxiety is not put in the context of anxiety versus like, like anxiety in the context of pain, but it's a temptation against peace, right? And here we see Daniel does not panic. He does not get angry. He doesn't, he's not reactionary here. He responds, the other thing is, this, is that this diet is not performative. It's quiet. Not everybody knows about it. In the midst of thousands of other Jewish boys who are not exhibiting faith the same way, Daniel's not being like, hey, look at me, I'm Christian. 
right? Look at me. Look at what I've given up for the Lord, unlike y'all. Because the point of their fast is not people. It is the Lord. And Daniel is quiet about his vegetarianism for three years. Even though it's a noble thing. And he has every right to be encouraged about it. But he is not performative about it. And we see here that Daniel exhibits wisdom. So in reaction to do we throw away science, I believe it is unwise to blindly put faith on the other side of science and say, hey, you either trust in science or you trust in faith. I believe that science points to the beauty of how God has created things. And I believe that there's an appreciation for science and appreciation for modern medicine that is possible in line with faith, okay? But we live in this full appreciation of science, knowing that the laws of science, I'm a geek, okay? Those who know me know how I feel about biochemistry. I'm not getting into it, okay? But as somebody who loves and appreciates all of that, as somebody who literally almost majored in biology with a subset of biological anthropology, just to understand evolution in its entirety and study it for myself, like, I appreciate science, but there has to be the knowledge that God is greater than that. That science covers only one facet of what God can do and what God has made. And I believe that that is a very logical, reasonable, wise understanding of the world that we live in. So yes, we don't understand a lot of things about COVID. Why did God do this? Why did, you know, we could go into theodicy and we can go into all of these different arguments, right? God is not to be blamed for a human problem, but, for the lack that we know, we can see that one way to have peace about the situation is that science only covers one facet of God. And so while we don't understand why this has happened, why we don't understand why all of us are still reeling from the impact of this pandemic, we don't have to jump and put and be so like, like so partisan and so um, radically like controversial and put these things at odds with one another. I don't believe that is in the spirit of the gospel. Right. But there are other things that fall under place with that. Right. God is greater than meat. God is greater than the ways that we understand our bodies to function. God can do more than our greatest thought and our greatest understanding. And yet sometimes we see the Babylonian. We see the culture. We see all of it in the face. We see it overtake our lives and we fall. We give into it. We give our name. We give our salvation over. We compromise our values. And we allow ourselves to make exceptions for the sake of culture. I'm not making for a, con a conservative case for Christianity per se, because I'm pretty moderate. But I am saying that God is greater than the most powerful thing in your life, which is most likely your own desire to fit in, to assimilate into this world. You could be like those 4,000 other Jewish boys. You could, and God would not blame you. God would not blame you. Why? It is hard to stay Christian in an unchristian world. When all your friends talk about is something completely else. 
when what everybody else prioritizes is everything other than church, you could, you could fall into that and nobody would blame you because culture is so strong and good people, wonderful people are making that decision every day. However, for those of us in the body of Christ who choose to be the remnant, great is your reward. Who knows if there were other Daniels in that group? But in the end, there was only one. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Culture and what you want to do and all of your most wonderful hobbies and the most wonderful things that you can choose to do with your life and the interests of your families and all of these things, they are wonderful things. They only go so far though. So if church is on the last of your list, my question to you would be, what if you are a Daniel? Yeah, you could live your life like this and God would not blame you. You would still have a place in the kingdom of heaven. This is not a matter of follow God or die. I'm not saying that at, at all, but I am challenging the measure of faith that you possess. What led you to choose the meat over God? What led you to choose what is valuable and fun and yummy and good for you in your eyes? What, what made you choose the fruit that you can see in your eyes over the Lord? Maybe the opposite of just giving in to what you think is wonderful and what is glittering in your eyes is faith. Faith to trust that at the end of these 10 days, at the end of these three years, you are going to be far greater. Yeah, you might have less time to do your work. You might have less time to do what you want to do. Less time to play. Less time to build for your family. Less money that you've saved up for your family. And saving and playing and studying, these are all wonderful, faithful things until they are prioritized before the Lord. And that is not something that anybody can determine for you but you. Are you willing to be used by God? Are you willing to spend your time for God and then out of that time, are you using it on what is glittering in your eyes? Because God likes it when you enjoy good things. But are you choosing to assimilate more than God? Does it seem like to you that the glory of God is contained within this house of American culture? That somehow church, we tend to have our faith be a room in our house without realizing that faith is the house that our lives inhabit. So have you compartmentalized faith in your life and relegated it to a shelf in the back of your treasury? Or have you chosen to allow faith to be the foundation, the cornerstone in which your house is built? And have you reconciled bringing everything, every other aspect of your life into this space? Let me tell you, God will not blame you, but the result will be different. That is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. When you see God for who he is, 
When you know God for who he is. That's why this is wisdom literature, guys. This is wisdom literature for young people. The book of Daniel is wisdom literature for young people who are pursuing their calling and who are pursuing a life past their idols. You want to look? Look no further than Daniel. Daniel is a book for the exiles. Daniel is a book for the diaspora. Daniel is a book for the hopeless. Daniel is a book for the people who have compromised themselves for the world that they live in. Daniel is a way that you can practically look and see what does it look like to fear God more than America? What does it look like to fear God more than my friends? More than a a possibility of not being able to do everything that I want to do. More than social media, more than the eyes of other people. What does it look like to fear God more than man? What does that actually look like practically for you? And so we see here the application, the relationship between faith and culture. Is your faith a room in your house? Maybe a shelf, maybe half a room. You know how our, how our bedrooms are half study space and half sleeping space? Maybe that's, all the, maybe that's all your faith is in your house, just a desk in a corner. But your identity is built on it. The only thing in your life right now that will last past the duration that your iPhone 12 is supposed to last, the only thing in your life right now that you can identify with that will outlast the corporations of Apple, Amazon, and Google combined is your faith. That is what we live in. And yet we are blinded because all that glitters is gold. That's fool's gold. We are letting go of gold for pyrite. And when you take that to the pawn shop and you're like, how much is this worth? At the end of your life, you take that to your pawn shop. How much is this worth? This is what I've accumulated. See what you get out of it. God will not blame you. Don't waste your youth on things that do not last. As much as it is fun, it's not worth it. Is Jane Doe saying, give up everything that you love? No, God likes fun. God likes it when you enjoy your life. My question is, what is the context of your life right now? Is God the house or a desk? If God is a desk, maybe it is time to reevaluate your life. You can be 14, you can be 40, and everybody might need to do that right now. Daniel and his three friends give insight and guidance to God's people as they confront oppression and the temptations of a godless life. Some things you might assimilate, others you might not. I also want to give a side high, like caveat and say, beware of hyper-Christian culture as well. There is a possibility that you cannot be giving a genuine witness because your life is just so, like it is, it is possible to be hyper-Christian to the point where your life seems fake. You realize like gospel-driven transformation is real faith to real people in a really difficult world, okay? It is possible to be performative. And let me tell you, the opposite of foolishness or the opposite of not prioritizing, 
I'm not saying that not prioritizing God is foolishness. I'm not making that kind of moral assumption. I can't because I'm in the same boat as you and I need to learn to do that every, every day as well. But the opposite of not fearing God is not necessarily hyper-Christian faith. If your faith is hyper-performative, reevaluate it, always. If you find validation that you are a really good Christian when other people say so, and rather than when you pray, when you're like, oh, I'm a good Christian after all, and comparing yourself to other people or hearing their encouragement for you, rather than actually seeing that or experiencing intimacy, go. You're already on the right track. Your heart is already desiring for the right things, but you have wandered off into the wrong valley. Get out of that road and run to the Lord and pray until the rain comes. Say, God, I'm not gonna stop. I'm not gonna get off this ground until you give me greater intimacy with you. It is hard living in this world. I don't know what it's like to be a proper Christian. It's difficult. I have my own desires and I want to walk with you. So give me what I need to do that. I'm not gonna get up until the rain comes. takes tenacity to acknowledge God because the easiest thing is to not. The last thing is, remember wisdom is the right action at the right time. It's not necessarily performative. It's not something that's made on your own. Seek the Lord. What is, always ask yourself, what is the appropriate Christian response? If, there, if you're ever caught in a situation where you don't know what to do, we've grown up in conservative Christian households, seeing more liberal people might freak us out, right? In some ways, or it might challenge our faith. It's, that's, that's what happens. When you grow up in a conservative Christian household and you get let out into the real world, meeting other people that are different from you, it can challenge your like worldview or it can freak you out and you'll run the other way. If you've never met like a non-binary person or like if you've never met like anybody like that in your whole life, even though this person is loved by God, a precious person in the eyes of God just because you haven't met somebody or like a race, right? That you've never met before, right? Maybe from Vanuatu or Papua New Guinea, like a, a race that you've never seen before, right? And you see cultural practices, like indigenous cultural practices you've never seen before, it might shock you and you might run away or you might break your worldview to let them in, right? But remember that always ask yourself in the midst of that, what is the right Christian response? What is the appropriate Christian response? Not the Institute of Christianity, but as a child of God, what is the appropriate response to the situation? And it might at least give you an an opportunity to not be reactionary and to respond. To not just act out of your discomfort, but to give space for love. And to have your worldview, like to have your worldview expanded without compromising your faith. We all need our worldviews to be broken. Everybody has a bubble that needs to be popped. But that bubble is your comfort, not your faith. Beware to pop the bubble of comfort and complacency rather than the bubble of your faith. Because faith is not a bubble. 
Faith is the most uncomfortable thing anybody could ever do when it's done right. Let's take this time to pray. What, what does it mean that God is greater than that of the world? What does it mean that God is in control of your life? What does it mean that you are in the context? Like for a lot of us, we are in a context where we are assimilating to something. For a lot of us, we are in a context where we are not the prevailing narrative. And we are all like conforming to something. What, what are you conforming to right now? And is God a desk or a shelf of artifacts? Or is he your house? Is he your dwelling place? Think of your life in the context of faith. Sometimes conformity is the opposite of faith. On the other end, some of us might be struggling with living an outward Christian life that is so outward that we might be having a hard time with the inward. If that's you, Hey, if both on both ends, if either are is you, hey, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He died for that very moment. But consider your life right now. Take this opportunity in this moment to consider your life right now. What is the foundation of your life? What do you choose to build your life on? Take some time with me to really reflect on that. If you have a hard time praying, take some time to really reflect on that. And as you reflect, as you come to your conclusions, ask the Lord. Come before God and say, God, I, if, you, if what you want to say is, God, I'm sorry, sure. But God doesn't need your, he doesn't need your sorry per se. He just wants you. So sometimes it just takes a matter of like, God, I, I want, I want to be able to do that, but I can't, right? God's not just looking for, God's not throwing himself a pity party looking for you to come home. God is just, he's just desirous for us. And so like, can we just take this moment to really pray and ask ourselves like, where do we stand in all of this? Where are we in all of this? And just take this moment right now to give glory, to ask more for more of his presence, for more of his wisdom. Let's take this time to pray. Let's pray. God, we ask for more and more. Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We're grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. <laughs>